I am so excited to open up to John chapter 10 this morning. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to open up with me as well to John chapter 10. And we're going to tackle this morning one of, if not the most well-known I am passage where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Now one of the challenges to properly dividing God's word and preaching the word of God is doing the best you can to understand how a first century listener would have heard and received that text, that truth, that that scriptural story. And not a few commentators have noted that we tend to have a wrong view about shepherds. We tend to think that shepherds were we're kind of soft, right? Um, not very strong. And there's, we don't have a Bobby, so I'll use the name Bobby as an example. I don't think we have a Bobby. Uh, maybe a middle name. I'm not talking about you if that's your middle name. But Bobby's growing up, and Bobby's just kind of soft, and people are like, what can he do? He can't do much. Well, I know what we can have him do. He can be a shepherd. He can hold fluffy lambs in his arms all day, you know? Now, D.A. Carson corrects that erroneous idea when he says that being a shepherd was a very tiring, a very manly, and a very dangerous job. They would get up at zero dark 30, work late, late, late. They would cover miles and miles over hours and hours of all kinds of terrain and all kinds of weather. They had to be constantly vigilant for predators and wolves that would want to devour the flock. If one was lost, they would relentlessly pursue that lost lamb or sheep. And if you remember last week, there was a kind of makeshift pen or sheepfold that they would have if they didn't come back for the night. That was just a circle of rocks, and they would lay at the door to keep the sheep in and the wolves out. So Carson has it right when he says it was a tiring, manly, and dangerous job being a first century shepherd. Now think of some of the shepherds that you've read about in the Old Testament. Who are some of them? David. David shows up to provide some provisions for the guys on the battlefront, and he steps up as a man, and he takes on Goliath. In fact, you can read all about many of David's battles in the Old Testament. He's a man's man, right? A shepherd. Take Moses. Moses sees an Egyptian beating on one of his fellow Jews, and he takes matters into his own hands for right or wrong, and he slays the guy. And then later, he will actually, yes, reluctantly, but he will do it, lead his people against the preeminent power of the day, Pharaoh in the Egyptian military. And then you go down to Amos, for instance. Uh, I think he was the sheep herder of Tekoa. And I just read the description of Amos, and I think of a guy who can strike a match just like that on a 5 o'clock shadow and it lights right up. Just a tough guy. And you read about the way he preached against the sins of Israel. But who's the most famous shepherd in the Old Testament? Anybody want to make a pass at that one? Good guess, but no. (laughs) But thank you for speaking up. Anybody else? Oh, go vertical on this. The Lord is my 
Psalm 23, verse 1. All, there's many, many scriptures that talk about the Lord is my shepherd. It was a little too easy, right? Now, all of that is the backdrop, if you will, for when Jesus comes along and he says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is the manliest shepherd that ever walked the face of the earth. But Jesus is also something else. I want to put a word with manly that we often don't put together, but actually should be put together because it's the essence of manliness. We're going to see in this, in this passage, Jesus is not only the most manly shepherd there ever was, he's the most loving shepherd there ever was. And we're simply going to look at five different ways our good shepherd, this loving, manly, good shepherd, does good for his people, all right? You might have an outline with you. I'm just going to kind of walk the outline, and then we're going to celebrate communion. First of all, our manly, loving, good shepherd, Jesus, knows his sheep. Pastor Cleet just read this passage, so let me just quickly highlight a few verses. Verse 14 he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Jesus knows his sheep. Now, if you were with us last week when I looked at the door imagery in this passage, I talked about the two kinds of sheepfolds. I just mentioned uh, the one out in the field by way of introduction. But if you weren't here, let me quickly just kind of recover what I shared, that you would have a more structural, substantive sheepfold in a village where numbers of families with their shepherds would hold their various flocks of sheep. And if you went out there one morning where the shepherds would get their individual flocks and they were all just kind of drinking their coffee and sitting, leaning against the fence, they would be able to say, now that's my sheep, now that's my sheep, now that, that's my sheep. They knew their sheep. Like, if you don't have sheep eyes, we would just look at all those sheep. I was driving back from Albion last night, and I saw a sheep herd, and they just looked like sheep. Maybe some were larger or smaller, but they didn't look different from, from my vantage point. But these, these first century shepherds, in a flock of sheep, in flocks of sheep, they could pick out their sheep. Now, we're going to see the implications of that in just a minute, but this runs us smack dab into the biblical doctrine, some call them reform doctrine, others call it biblical doctrine, of predestination and election. Because biblically and hebraically, to know an object is to choose to have an intimate relationship with that. So sometimes it's used of a man knowing his wife, Abraham knew Sarah. It says it so plainly in Ephesians 1.4 that he chose us who are in Christ from the foundation of the world. Here's the loving part. In love he predestined us to adoption as children through Jesus Christ to himself to the praise of his glory. Now, here are two ways we don't want to respond to the biblical truth of predestination and election, which are slightly different things but kind of get at the same thing. One is sometimes people abuse that truth. Well, if God's got it all figured out and his people chosen, you know, people then get lazy. They lack evangelistic urgency. There's a, there's a passivity. And sometimes there's even a blaming of God for things that go wrong and not taking responsibility. God is not a master puppeteer. 
We are not puppets on a string. Now, there's great mystery in all this, but we have a free fallen will, but a free fallen will, therefore we make our own decisions that have actual real implications. That's why you have the book of Proverbs that says, you ought not to do that, and maybe you ought to do that, right? So sometimes people abuse this truth. Other times people deny this truth. They say, well, that just doesn't seem fair. Go hang out with Paul in Romans chapter 9 and read this thing about a potter and clay and that might answer your objection. Or they don't deny it that way, but they kind of twist it and and talk it down and, and distort it and say something crazy like, well, God chose us because he saw that we would choose him. The Bible doesn't teach that. And I just want to say, instead of abusing that truth or denying that truth, maybe we ought to just take it and encourage each other with this truth. If you've walked with, any, with Christ for any length of time, you will experience what the Puritans called the dark night of your soul. You ever had that? The valley of despair, there's depression, maybe something happens in your life, and you're just, you, you just feel like you're in spiritual limbo. And you're like, do I even really belong to the Lord? And I would just say to you that you would not even care about your spiritual standing. You would even care about having a relationship with God had God not known you, chosen to have an intimate relationship with you. It's very, very encouraging. And therefore, I just want to give you Philippians 1.6. And I've been confident of this very good thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, and that good work began with him knowing you in eternity past, in that kind of way, will perform it through the day of Jesus Christ. He will get it done. Encourage yourself with that in the dark night of your soul. But we never want to have a hyper-individualized Christianity, do we? So after you encourage your heart, why don't you encourage your hands and your feet and your mouth to step out, to get out, and to speak out the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are lost and dying without him? Verse 16, oh, I love this verse. One of the first sermons I ever preached about 20 years ago was from this verse. Verse 16, I have other sheep, he says, that are not of this fold. He's talking about now Gentile people, individuals that he has chosen to have a relationship with from eternity past. Have you ever heard of David Livingston? He was a missionary in the 1800s to unreached parts of Western Africa. Loved the continent, loved the people so much, this sounds weird, but when he died, he asked that they would cut his heart out and bury it under a mulva tree. And there it is to this day, there's a plaque there. Now, the rest of his body was interned at Westminster Abbey. That's in London. Old, old chapel, old, old, majestic edifice. And there are these words above where his body lay. It is John 10, 16, other sheep have I. It was that verse that called him to go after those that God would save. Now, an interesting story is a guy named Peter Cameron Scott, who started the Africa Inland Mission, he was in Africa, western part of Africa, an unreached part. And he becomes very discouraged. He loses his brother. Other people around him die. He loses his health. He's not even sure if God's in it and it's worth it all. He comes back to England just to 
kind of hang his head. And one day he goes up to Westminster, Westminster Chapel, and he sees Livingston's uh, where, he's, where he's buried, and he sees those words, other sheep have I. And that called him back to the field. So the idea that having a high view of the sovereignty of God would somehow kill evangelism is not historically true. In fact, it's what gives us confidence, hope, and hope when it doesn't seem like people are responding. Hey, God has his people. You be faithful, and he will bring the fruit. God knows his sheep. The good, loving, manly shepherd knows his sheep. You see that? Number two, the good, loving, manly shepherd calls them by name. This is really sweet. Verse three, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep, how? By name. And then if other verses it says, they hear his call and they follow him. We'll get to that. The Hanafis have a zoo. We have, you've heard me say this before, but we, we have lots of different animals. It seems like every time we go on a trip, we come home with a different animal. We, we have two dogs, Knox and Lucy. Uh, we, my, my, our most recent addition, Father's Day gift, Clenny, our blue parakeet, who has gotten to know me and now is ir- irritating but also loving. Oh, he's always on my shoulder um, and sometimes leaving a deposit, but that's another story. We have a turtle uh, from a, a trip up north. We have a cat that Emma named Rocky, but because when we first got this cat in our backyard, uh, Titus pronounced Rocky, Shrocky, so we still kind of endearingly call this cat Shrocky. Um, then we have Carolyn's cat, Joe Exotic. Oh, and then we have Leroy, Ian's ball python, really cool. Titus held the ball python for the first time yesterday. He can't stop talking about it. Now listen, if we go back to that, that structured sheepfold, and you see the shepherds come up, and they're all just kind of drinking their morning coffee, ready to start their day. When someone said, okay, get the day going, they would, go from, they would go in a field near the opening of that, of that sheepfold, and each shepherd would call that sheep by name. Just like we name our pets, they kind of had that relationship with sheep. They, they weren't pr- primarily for meat. They would often shepherd those sheep for 10 years. They primarily provided wool. And they probably named the sheep because of some unique physical trait about them or some story about when the sheep was born. But they named their sheep. And when they called their sheep, what did those sheep do? Their sheep, not other sheep, their sheep did what? They came. Now, sometimes they stray. We'll get to that as we close in a few minutes. But they came at the calling of their name. And just this morning, the way the text is, we arrive at another reformed or biblical doctrine of regeneration and calling. It goes down like this. You share the gospel with a group of friends, say, at a restaurant, at a table at your home somewhere. Or maybe somebody shares the gospel in a room like this during a church service. And most of the people are like, that dude is whack. He really believes that stuff? That lady's crazy. I always thought she was different. Now I know why. And a few people are more polite. Hey, thank you for sharing your heart. But they're really not interested. But then there's a few people, and they're like, whoa, is this true? This is the greatest news I've ever Jesus will. I, he can take away my sin. I can have a relationship with God. I mean, that happens, right? 
Now, did that happen because you gave the gospel to them extra good? No, you gave the same gospel to everybody in your hearing, right? Did it happen because they were smarter than all the rest? No, it happened for this reason, that as you were speaking, Jesus was calling them because he had known them from the foundation of the world. He had chosen them. And next week, we're going to see in clarion colors the power of that call of Jesus from death to life when he raises Lazarus from the dead. We'll get to that next week. But you see this in the book of Acts chapter, chapter 16. Eight or nine women, they're on a riverside. They're wor- worshiping God as they, as they know how, as they know him to be. Paul comes along. He preaches the gospel to them. And it says of Lydia, verse 14, Acts 16, and the Lord opened her heart. And she receives him. Now, now the theological freight behind that is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. For those whom he did predestinate, he also called, come to life. It's a glorious truth. And just listen, this happens sometimes in one-on-one Bible studies. Or sharing the gospel with your kid for the 478th time. Or in a foxhole. Or in a hotel, somebody slides out a Bible. Some hotels still have Bibles, others don't. Or when they're hearing a sermon, but as the gospel is delivered, it always happens with the gospel, the Spirit comes and draws them home. And I'm just telling you, he knows his sheep, and the calling of his sheep that he's known is just another manifestation of his loving, manly goodness to his people. Now here is the heart of this passage. He not only knows the sheep and calls them by name, he lays down his life for the sheep. Look at this in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. Go on verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. And in verse 17, I lay down my life. Now that's in contrast to the hired hands, right? Right? The hirelings, verses 12 through 14, says of them, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. And he cares nothing for the sheep. Now, if you were to, so they would have, you know, hired hands who sometimes were the doorkeepers for the, for the sheepfold back in the city. And sometimes maybe just the shepherd needed a minute off, and so they, they would hire somebody to take his spot. Now, if you were to interview one of these hired hands, hirelings, you'd say, hey, what do you think about the sheep that you're watching? They'd probably say, you know, they're all right enough, I guess, but ain't worth giving t- my tail for 12 bucks an hour, you know. They, they don't. They don't, have, they don't have a sense of responsibility for the sheep. They don't really care for them. They're not committed. They are just hired hands. Unlike a good shepherd who really knew those sheep and loved those sheep, he's going to stand in the way of harm for the sheep, even getting gnawed on a little bit by a wolf in order to save a sheep. And so I just need to take a little side route right here. To anyone here who shepherds, Anything, which would be every Christian here, whether you help under-shepherd a church or you shepherd a family, a relationship, a sibling, 
some ministry. We, everybody has some kind of shepherding responsibility. I want to ask you, as, you, as you fulfill that responsibility, when stuff gets tough, and it will, do you run or do you stick in it and stay in it and take it on the chin when you have to? Because there are times when you are seeking to shepherd whatever your shepherding responsibility is, and the wolves are going to come and try and bite you. Now, you kind of expect that. That's part of the job description. But sometimes sheep are going to bite you too. That's the more painful part. But you stay in there because as the shepherd, you see some things, some dangers that the sheep can't quite see, and they don't like you trying to protect them at that point. But it's what you're called to do. I'm very aware of that right now with all that's going on. I am not a hireling. I am not a hired hand. I'm going to try to be faithful to Scripture. And we all have to do that, and sometimes it's not popular. Every parent knows this, right? When you tell your child you can't do that or maybe wear that or go there, they're like, thank you for watching out for my best interest, right? No, we all kind of gave guff back, right? It's just part of being a parent, right? But are we going to be a hireling parent, a hired hand parent, or are we going to truly be a loving, manly, or womanly good shepherd to our kids? Anyway, Jesus does not only not flee when the wolves come after him, he doesn't flee when the worst danger comes after him. The wrath of God. The righteous, holy wrath of God that we deserve. He actually lays down his life. And I just want to break this down quickly. First of all, when Jesus laid down his life, it was totally voluntary. He says in verse 17, I lay down my life, and I may take it up again. And then verse 18 is even stronger. See it with me. No one takes it from me, but what? I lay it down on my own accord, baby. In other words, this wasn't forced upon me. Yeah, the taunting, the mocking, the scourging, the beating, the betrayal, the crucifixion, most of all. Horrific. Terrible. But not a tragedy in the sense of catching the Son of God by surprise. Not a tragedy in the sense of being a completely helpless victim. No, no. This, he's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8, planned in the, in the council of the triune God. Right? There's, a, there's this painting of him um, from many hundred years ago where it's a picture of him just as a toddler in his dad's workshop. Maybe you've seen that. And the shadows coming through the window, it cast, the lights coming through the window, and it cast the, the image or the shadow of a cross upon him, just as a toddler. What, what a depiction of what he came for. He always talked about the hour to come in which he would willingly give his life. He says, I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. It was voluntary. Second of all, it was vicarious, meaning substitutionary, in our place. It does say he gave, he talks about the sheep, the sheep in verse 11. He talks about in verse 16, other sheep, people who also, who God has set a saving affection on, who will come in faith to him. 
He lays down his life for the sheep, verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life. For who? For the sheep, like in their place, right? The four greatest words in secession are Christ died for us. He offered himself as the propitiatory sacrifice in our place. And that's why we, we always sing about it. We should always sing about it. We should continue singing about it. We just sing, it's going to be our endless praise. It will be our endless praise. You go to Revelation chapter 5, you're never going to scratch your head and you're going to say, man, this sure is a sweet place. Glory, the new kingdom, the new creation. I don't know how I got here, but I love it here. No, 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 no. Boom, the spotlight focuses on the lamb as though it had been slain. We're never, ever going to get over the fact the only reason we are near and dear to the eternal transcendent God is because the suffering of the Son of God on the cross. Vicarious in our place. But here's something else. I wish I had a V, but I don't. Specific. Very specific. He talks about the sheep. I just mentioned this. He laid down his life for. He talks about, verse 16, other sheep, people who have not yet come but who will, who he has laid down his life for. And he even, now this is going to make some of us uncomfortable, but I'm just going to preach the Bible. He even tells some of the unbelieving Pharisees. He says this to them. He says, and it's um, verse 26. He doesn't say, because you don't believe, you're not going to be one of my sheep. He actually says, because you are not my sheep, you do not believe. That's pretty strong stuff right there, isn't it? So yes, absolutely, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? God loves all kinds of people from all walks of life, from all sin backgrounds, from all ethnic backgrounds, from every kind of background, every ethnos. But, but Jesus did not sort of die for everybody, nebulously in general, so as not to secure the salvation of one particular individual. No, Jesus, Jesus, who loves the world and gave himself for the world, was securing the salvation, guaranteeing the salvation of those that were known and who would be called. In other words, Jesus took names to the cross. And if you're in Christ, know this, he took your name to the cross. He paid your sin, past, present, and future. Now, sometimes people have abused this truth. It's, it's, sometimes people call it limited atonement. I don't like calling it that. I'm more, I like particular redemption. But when the angel appeared and announced of his birth, the angel said, for he shall save his people from their sins. Targeted. And then finally, validated. He said, look at this in verse 18. I not only lay it down of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to do what? Take it up again. What's he talking about there? He's talking about his bodily, physical resurrection from the dead. And the resurrection validated the crucifixion. You see, let, let's put the gospel together. The penalty for sin is what? death, which is physical death. That's why, we, that's why Pastor Clee is going to preach a funeral right now. People die. But it's also spiritual death, which is being cut off from God forever. And the proof that Jesus defeated death and paid the penalty of sin, which is death, is that he rose from death. He rose from the dead. 
Now, I've covered some pretty strong stuff this morning. I get that. Let's back out a little bit. And, and, and I, don't know, I don't know everybody here, and I certainly know everybody who's watching online. You can't say with integrity, because you hear people say this, well, I don't believe in Jesus the way you Christians do, but I think he was a really smart guy. And I thought he taught some pretty good things, too. Now, you can't say that with integrity. Now, here's why. Jesus said, going back to the very first message of the series, that I am, meaning I'm, I am Yahweh. I am God incarnate. So he claimed to be God. Pretty crazy assertion, right? He then said that he was the only way into God's kingdom. He then said, as we, we see this morning, that he would die in the place of sinners like us for whoever would come and rise again to prove that he is who he said he is and could pay the penalty for all who would believe. Now, if that's not true, he's a liar of the first degree, right? You ought not trust anything the man like that would say. You're going to lie like that. Or if it's not true and he's not a liar and he really believes it, he's just a lunatic and he ought to be committed to the nearest insane asylum. But if it is true, enough of that business, you must... Fall on your face and call him Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Many people have written about that. Maybe you've heard that before. But if you haven't, I just put that before you. Now, we've got to get to the supper. So let, let, me, let me give you two more things real quick. He's a loving, manly, good shepherd. Knows his sheep. Calls his sheep. Lays down his life for the sheep. Voluntary fashion. Vicarious. Specific. Validated. But fourth of all, he cares for his sheep. <laughs> right now, he cares for his sheep. He cares for you. And I don't have time to explore this too much, but if you just get into the shepherd imagery, you will find some encouraging truths about how the living Christ shepherds his sheep to this very second. Two ways I'm going to mention. A good shepherd would shepherd his sheep out in the field and watch for when they became what's called cast. Anybody ever heard that? So that is when a sheep would eat a lot of grass, you know, big belly, stuffed, and it would lie down, and sometimes it would inadvertently lie on an incline, and it would fall over on its back almost like a turtle. It's called being, in, it, being cast. You can read about it. And if that sheep wasn't righted, it didn't have the strength sometimes to get back on its feet, it actually, the gases from digesting the food would actually kill it in a matter of hours. So a good shepherd was always surveying the horizon of the pasture to make sure that there were no sheep that were cast. Because if he did not get them in a few hours, they might die. Now how often are we cast by stupid, sinful decisions we make, right? And sometimes we just, we've all been there. We make some decisions and we're now on our back and we can't really help ourselves. But the one, it says in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, right? And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's living. He sometimes comes and gets us out of the consequences of our sin. Has that ever happened for you? 
Like you just put, you just made a series of decisions that got you to a place that you never thought you would go, and yet you, you're, you're no longer there. You're, you're like that guy who's now seated, clothed in his right mind because Jesus came and got you again. He's a good, good shepherd. He comes and picks us back on our feet and puts us on the way. Another way that he cares for a sheep, though, is that gate check. When the shepherd would come into the gate, whether the one in the city or the one out in the field, he would inspect each individual sheep that he knew by name. He'd make sure there was no wounds, no bites, nothing like that. But he would also pick insects out of their ears and nose. Sounds gross, but they, I think it was something called nasal bots where they would get in there and lay eggs. and would be very, you can imagine, very irritating. How would you like to have bugs in your nose, right, in your ears? So he would pick them out and put oil on them. And he would do that because it was very irritating, and sometimes they had a really bad coping mechanism for how they dealt with it when it was untreated. They would literally beat their head against a rock, doing more injury, trying to relieve the pain from the nasal bots. Now, life throws us a lot of pain, right? Stuff comes at us. And let's be honest. Sometimes we go to coping mechanisms about as healthy as beating our heads against a wall, right? And Jesus comes and he pulls those nasal bots out, right? And he anoints us freshly with the oil of the Spirit. And he sends us on our way and he heals us from hurt. That's Jesus. Now the last thing I want to say is this. Jesus leads his sheep. It's all through, this, all through the text. Verse 3 explicitly says, they know him and they follow him. He leads them. We think of a shepherd, we think of them driving them, driving a herd of sheep or a flock of sheep from, from the rear, right? But the way these shepherds did is that they actually led from the front. A Palestinian shepherd in that kind of terrain, they would lead their flock from the front to make sure that there were no rocky crags they could fall in, no cliffs they could fall over, no, no, no predators. They would lead from out front. I mentioned probably way too many times that over quarantine, I watched Band of Brothers about the greatest generation, the generation that, that stormed Normandy. When they got to the Battle of the Bulge some months later, uh, they had an officer take charge of one of the companies. Who was actually, most officers were great in that unit. He was a terrible officer, Lieutenant Dyke. And you can read interviews that happened in uh, year 2001 about this guy. He was called Foxhole Dyke. Because every time the rounds started flying, he was in the rear with the gear. He didn't really love the men. He was just a careerist, an opportunist, and he would not be out front when things were dangerous. Jesus is no foxhole dyke. Jesus leads us today from out front. Now, I know we don't see him physically, but he's given us a spirit to walk in his ways. Sometimes... Um, we're not aware of his leadership. I think sometimes we're not aware of his leadership because we don't spend consistent time at his feet, right? And because we don't spend consistent time at his feet, sometimes as a result, we don't actually go where he's leading, right? How many times have you gone your own way? Oh, we sheep like sheep, we've gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. But you know, he's such a good shepherd, he halts, he halts the movement. And he comes back and he gets you. He leaves the 99 and he comes for the one. Now how does he come for the one? He comes for the one in a wide, wide array of ways, but sometimes he'll come through the word of God delivered in a sermon. 
And maybe you would say, you know what, I have stepped off the path. I have, I have stopped following. I've stopped hearing my name. And, and, and maybe sometimes the Spirit of God catches us by surprise. It's kind of like being in a very boring uh, classroom, just a boring professor, boring teacher, and then one day, inexplicably, inexplicably, unexplainably, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, the topic really interests you. You ever had that happen? Usually that teacher is really boring, but this is really cool stuff. Well, that's just a small picture of what happens. Maybe you've been coming to church because that's what you're supposed to do. Logging your time, putting it in, and, and then bam, all of a sudden, man, I think the Lord's calling my name. I, th- I mean, I think the God of the universe is really speaking to me. That's how it happens. And if that's you, all you need to do is own up to whatever he's putting on your heart regarding sin in your life. And by the power of the Spirit, commit to following him faithfully. And the ultimate demonstration that Jesus leaves the 99 and comes for the one is the cross.